I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. I hope you're having a wonderful festive season and all the best wishes to everybody listening for a wonderful new year as well. So this episode, I'm going to talk about childbirth in medieval and Renaissance England. I recently watched the BBC series called Medieval Lives that Helen Castor hosted. It's on YouTube if you haven't seen it. And I was really struck by the episode on childbirth. And it seemed obvious that I should do an episode on that, given that I've been pretty open about my own medieval issues with conception and carrying a successful pregnancy and childbirth, both here and in my personal blog. So I'm going to focus this episode on how women gave birth in medieval and Renaissance England, and especially the changes that began to permeate into the birthing room with the Reformation. So also one note, I'm going to be talking frankly about birth and pregnancy and sex. So if you are uncomfortable about that, or if you haven't had the birds and the bees talk from your parents yet, you really should not listen to this unless it's like with a parent. I know a lot of schools have links to this podcast up on their websites, and I really don't want to be the one to tell you about how babies are made. So go talk to a parent or another trusted adult, like a teacher or a youth group leader, okay? All right, the um, official public announcement portion is now over. So let's look at the medical knowledge and resources that women would have had as they got pregnant and carried a baby to term and then went through the ordeal of labor and delivery. First, it's important to recognize that the medical establishment at the time viewed women as incomplete men. And all of the medical textbooks from the time came from the position that women were men who weren't all the way formed yet. The vast majority of medical knowledge that doctors had at the the time came from ancient Roman and Greek texts, and the idea of the half-formed man comes from Galen. There's also a famous text called the Trotula Texts, which is actually three titles combined that were compiled in Salerno in the 12th century. The Italian port of Salerno at the time was a famous medical hub, and it was responsible for bringing a lot of knowledge from the Arabic world into Europe. One of the texts called The Book on the Conditions of Women talks a great deal about pregnancy, menstruation, and also care for a newborn child. This text was still making its way through Europe over the next several hundred years after it was first compiled, 
And it would have been a novel compilation of women's health issues. Because at the time, it was actually fairly difficult to study women's health if you were a male doctor, since very few women would be comfortable having a man handle their routine care. And most men might also find it sinful and lustful. So there were very few texts about women's health, even until very recently. I remember when I was pregnant, my mom actually gave me this book called Expectant Motherhood, and it was published in the 1950s. And um, it talked about how your first visit with your doctor is going to be the most embarrassing visit of your life, but you just have to kind of grin and bear it because it's important for the child. And that was only, you know, 60, 70 years ago. So you can imagine going back 500, 600 years, um, how difficult it would have been for men to actually study women's health. So Hippocrates gave us another idea about how women became pregnant that was still popular in medieval and Renaissance England, which is, th is that women were not just the recipient of a man's sperm or seed, as they called it, but they provided seed themselves. Now, what this meant was that a woman needed to have an orgasm in order to get pregnant. So I've read this before. And while there's clearly a positive side to this belief for women, Ladies, don't go getting too excited about this and bringing the idea back, starting some kind of medieval women's lib hashtag movement or something, because in the Middle Ages, it was actually often used as proof against a woman's claim of rape if she got pregnant. Clearly, if she got pregnant, she enjoyed it because she had an orgasm, and so it couldn't have been rape. So I'm sure many rapists got off the hook because they just happened to commit their terrible crime at a time when the woman just happened to be ovulating. So it actually wasn't a very, a very good um, belief to have long term. So let's go to a happier note. Let's have Joe marry Jane. They love each other very much, and he wants to have babies with her. Let's say it doesn't happen right away. Some towns had very interesting rituals to help with fertility. There was a meadow in Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk, where up until the 15th century, a white bull was kept for use in the town's annual conception ritual. The bull would be led by the monks at Bury St. Edmunds in a procession from the meadow, and the women who wanted to conceive would accompany the bull, stroking its sides until they reached the gates of the abbey. And at that point, they would enter the church and make all of their prayers and offerings to St. Edmund. Once a woman got pregnant, assuming that she does, she has a lot of mixed messages that she needs to deal with. First, there's, of course, images everywhere of the Virgin Mary and the birth of Jesus being this really beautiful, holy event, which, of course, we just celebrated. We The whole world has this holiday around this beautiful event of the birth of Jesus in the manger and how peaceful it is and silent night and all of that. So contrast that to a popular book of the time called Holy Maidenhood, which describes pregnancy in part with this quite cheery opening, quote, your rosy face will grow thin and turn green as grass. Your eyes will grow dull and shadowed underneath. And because of your dizziness, your head will ache cruelly. Inside your belly, a swelling in your womb, which bulges you out like a water skin, discomfort in your bowels and stitches in your side, and often painful backache, heaviness in every limb, the dragging weight of your two breasts and the streams of milk that run from them. Your beauty is all destroyed by pallor. There is a bitter taste in your mouth, and everything that you ate makes you feel sick. Worry about your labor pains keeps you awake at night. Then when it comes to it, that cruel, distressing anguish, that fierce, stabbing pain, that incessant misery, that torment upon torment, that wailing outcry, while you are suffering from this and from your fear of death, 
Shame added to that suffering with the shameful craft of old wives who know about that painful ordeal, whose help is necessary to you, however indecent it may be, and there you must put up with whatever happens to you. Unquote. After reading that, I would totally be headed straight to a nunnery. So in another contemporary book, though, called The Sickness of Women, things aren't quite as bad. They say that if it's a normal, natural childbirth, 20 pangs or so should be enough. But of course, we don't really know that much about how often the births went so easily. We're a little better informed with complications. In the 16th and 17th century in England, the estimations are that about one out of every 40 women died in childbirth, one in 40, and as many as 200 out of a 1,000 children would die before the age of five. Those are staggering statistics. Mothers were advised to make confessions and to make their wills if they needed to before labor in case they died giving birth. Complications mentioned in The Sickness of Woman starts with the, quote, unnatural presentations, i.e. the baby in the wrong position. In these instances, the midwife is to anoint her hands with wild thyme oil and attempt to turn or rearrange the baby or enlarge the cervix without medicine. Totally not cool. The birth of my own daughter was successful only with forceps, but of course, until the 17th century, forceps didn't exist. If the baby was stuck, attempts would be made to jar the baby out by shaking the woman, lifting her, rearranging her, repositioning her, and other similar methods, which, given the fact that she was probably in the second stage of labor by this point, I can only imagine how painful they must have been. In fact, let me take a moment and just sit down here for a minute because I'm kind of making myself nauseous. Sorry if you're like eating or something. So if you're driving, like probably you should stop <laughs> listening to this. No, I think that was the worst, actually. So in the case of stillborn children, it appears that the life of the mother and not the baby was meant to be saved if possible. So that also leads to an interesting conundrum that involves baptism. Midwives extraordinarily were given the right to perform the sacrament of baptism in an emergency if the child would die. And that was not only so that the child could be buried in consecrated ground, but also so that they could go to heaven. Um, they didn't need to wait until the child was fully delivered. If it looked as if they wouldn't live, if there was any protruding limb at all, the baby could be baptized. There's also stories of doing postmortem cesareans if the mother died um, to bring out the baby and baptize the baby before the baby died as well. Priests would work with the midwives to ensure that they knew the correct words of the ceremony and that they had clean water available. Um, and in the late Middle Ages, there were actually some concerns that midwives were using witchcraft to kill a baby or a mother or both. And so they started actually coming up with more careful regulations of midwives and, and licensing midwives um, because they had such power over both the physical and the spiritual realm of, of the child and the mother. So fortunately for most midwives, though, birth was this communal event. There were lots of women there. And there were also many, many witnesses to a midwife's decisions. So if something was questioned, there were, there were people there who would attest to the necessariness of um, baptizing the child or whatever they had to do to the mother. So interestingly, some recent excavations have shown that mothers grieved for lost babies just as much as we do now and as much as I myself did. We actually keep our son's ashes in our living room so that he's still part of our family. Some excavations of homes have shown babies' graves under the home, lovingly made, where the baby was arranged as if he was sleeping and had little tokens buried with him. 
Some people have argued that maybe it was because the family couldn't afford to bury the baby in the church, or maybe the baby wasn't baptized. But it also shows some scholars contend that the grief was very real. And just because it was so much more common, it didn't make the parting any easier for the families. So let's say you're going to give birth and the pregnancy is healthy and everything seems to be going well. About six weeks before you were due, you would go into confinement, which was your own space with the windows shut up to keep out the bad humors and with lots of women around you. No men were allowed except very rarely priests. I can imagine today it might be a group of women with perhaps Channing Tatum posters everywhere. I don't know. So um, at that time, they had more prayer roles and and religious things. Um, Noble women and queens often had celebrations and feasts to celebrate their going into confinement as well. When labor began, one of the saints that a a woman might pray to was St. Margaret, the patron saint of childbirth. And women would often listen to readings about her in their early stages of labor. There were also icons and relics that women depended on. At Burton-on-Trent in Staffordshire, pregnant women were, quote, very desirous to have the staff of St. Modwina to lead on, lean on. Others had statues or tapestries or prayer rolls to help them focus. And for centuries, women believed in the benefits of Jasper And also they used birth girdles. At Westminster Abbey, monks guarded the Virgin Mary's own birth girdle given to them by Edward the Confessor, and it was available to rent out for noble and royal births. And interestingly, you know, it kind of sounds funny to our modern ears to to think that prayer rolls could make a difference or birth girdles or icons. Um, But this is the way women who want a natural drug-free childbirth are often coached even now. Um, Side note, I studied self-hypnosis before giving birth in an effort to go drug-free. And there was a lot of emphasis on the music you could play that could trigger a hypnotic state, on imagery, going to a safe space in your head and having your partner recreate and describe that space to you, and other ways to get into a really relaxed state. For what it's worth, my own safe space was a beach in Bournemouth at sunset on a summer's day, although after 25 hours of hearing my husband talk to me about it in between contractions, I'm actually a little bit sick of Bournemouth now. No offense if you live in Bournemouth. I'm sure I'll get over it as soon as I go back. So um, the idea of icons and and meditations on the lives of saints actually really isn't that unusual, and, and we still use it today in certain ways. But as the Reformation grew in England and brought with it the destruction of idols, these potential tools were taken from women. In 1538, the Bishop of Salisbury gave instructions that midwives in his diocese were not to use girdles, purses, measures of Our Lady, or other superstitious things. Some were told that they could no longer pray to the saints, but I'm not really sure that there would be any way to trace how closely these instructions were followed. I can't imagine being told while in the middle of labor that I was praying to the wrong saint. So, you know, who knows how closely they were followed. But officially, they weren't supposed to pray to the saints anymore. After childbirth, women were churched or purified about a month after giving birth and would reemerge into the world at that point. The churching ceremony instructions are found in Leviticus, and some people have argued that the ceremony is more just kind of institutionalized misogyny, seeing as how it's associated with the Old Testament taboos around menstruation. But it's interesting to note that modern women, even today, are told to avoid sex for at least a month or their six-week postpartum checkup to make sure that everything is healed and the risk of infection has gone down. So really, there was something to it. And because even after giving birth, a woman's life was still in danger, Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour, 
died just two weeks after giving birth to her son, Edward. Those of you who watched Downton Abbey will remember that the Lady Sybil died after childbirth. Infection was a leading cause of death for most women, as was eclampsia. So a common event for people who could afford it was to go on a pilgrimage after childbirth. The shrine at Walsingham in Norfolk attracted many pilgrims who wanted blessings for fertility or for safe labors, or to give thanks for children who were safely delivered, because it was built in the 11th century to depict the house in Nazareth where the Annunciation took place. Henry VIII himself went there in January 1511, 1511, when Catherine of Aragon gave birth to a son, and he walked the final mile. Though, of course, it was a little too soon to celebrate, and the prince would die several weeks later. Um, two of his wives also visited Walsingham for fertility blessings. And again, Walsingham Priory was dissolved in 1538. And I can imagine Henry approving that dissolution and saying a giant F you to it, considering how little it had helped him. Finally, a note on birth control. Women didn't have the pill, obviously, but there were ways that birth control was practiced, despite the fact that it was seen as a sin. By the early 14th century, couples practicing the withdrawal method were widespread enough to be troubling to confessors, and also many women had access to herbs that could cause the body to abort a fetus and were extremely effective in the early stages of pregnancy, sort of like a modern morning-after pill. So despite a lack of modern medicine, couples and women did have some ways of taking control over their reproductive lives. And seriously, please don't send me emails about abortion. Like, just don't. Like, <laughs> just really don't. I kind of hesitate even last, saying that last sentence. Seriously, just just don't do it. It's not a good idea. So stuff, that's it for this week, except the book recommendation, which is Medieval Women, A Social History of Women in England, 450 to 1500 by Henrietta Lizer. I apologize if I'm saying your name wrong. Um, I'll put a link up to purchase it on the website, which I'm actually trying to relaunch on WordPress with a lot of links and supporting documentation for my podcast in the next few months. So check it out soon. And I'll also throw up the YouTube link to Helen Castor's Medieval Live series, which I highly recommend. And something else is that a lot of you, uh, this podcast gets a huge amount of downloads, right? And so I have a favor to ask of you. If you like it, please take a few minutes to write a review on whatever service you use to listen to it, like iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. Um, it would make a big difference for me and I would be forever grateful. And second, I'm trying to cover some of the ongoing costs for this podcast, as well as be able to make more episodes regularly. So I've set up an account on Patreon, which is a site that lets you support content creators like me and other artists, songwriters, or even podcasters. You can pledge a per episode contribution and set a monthly maximum. So my page on Patreon is patreon.com slash nomadchick, N-O-M-A-D-C-H-I-C-K, if you're feeling generous and are so inclined. Um, I'll also put a link up on the site and on Facebook. And so the address for all of these things is englandcast.com, H-T-T-P colon slash slash englandcast.com. Or you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash englandcast. And also remember to check out my blog of random curiosities, which is curatory.com, K-U-R-A-T-O-R-Y.com. And I hope I see you over there sometime soon. So again, I hope you're having a fantastic festive season. And I wish you all the best for a wonderful 2015. And I will see you again very soon. Thank you so much for your listenership and for your support. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. 
Blow northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hörte Bord in Bauerbrick, that Sully Sam lies on sich. Menschful maiden of meat, fair and freight of thunder. In all this war, fleece of one, bored of blood and of bone, never yet in Houston on, not so merry in London.